Well, welcome. We got that ring. Um, good to be with you. It's uh, so familiar and yet different. I like that the doors are open. Um, it reminds us that we're still re-emerging from a time. Jake, is there anything I can do besides stop talking? Yeah, might as well. Okay, we could use the podium mic if you'd like. Yep. Good morning. Ramona, good to see you. So, I want to ask you a question. How are you doing with Jesus? How's your relationship with Christ? If you had to epitomize your, your relationship with God, where you're at with Jesus, in a word or a phrase, what might that word be? What might that phrase be? It's interesting how it's easy for me to ask you, how was your weekend? How was the game yesterday? Uh, how, how was your week? How, how's your job going? But it feels a little awkward to ask that question, how are you doing with Jesus? Where are you at with him? I grew up uh, in a church, and, and there was a pastor there who every once in a while would ask me that question. How are you doing with Jesus, Steve? And I never knew quite what to make of that question. I, I, would, I would think, well, have I been praying recently? Uh, have I been reading my Bible? And if so, I, I could say, oh, I guess I'm doing okay with Jesus. But if I hadn't been praying or reading my Bible, which is more often the case, uh, I took the implication to be that I wasn't doing very well with Jesus, and I needed to get my act together. Where are you at with Jesus? I don't think that's what that pastor meant at all. If, if you've been around Grace Church Long Beach for any length of time, you know that we take the person of Jesus very seriously. We, we think he's alive and well, and that he's still working in this world to draw people to himself, to invite them, to invite us to follow him. That Christianity is, is not primarily about a set of beliefs or doctrines that we believe. It's not a, a, a bunch of rituals or events that we attend that it's primarily an overall way of life with the person of Jesus. Learning from him how to live in his father's kingdom, under his father's rule and reign by the Holy Spirit. There, there's this passage in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by other people who have lived this life of faith, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles. And let us run with endurance or perseverance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus or looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher or per perfecter of our faith. I love that language of Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. That, that he's writing a story with our lives, with our faith life. He's authoring a story. 
We're on a journey with him, and he knows the end. As, as Paul put it, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And that's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. We, we look to Jesus throughout our day because he's, he's telling a story with our lives. He's, he's, he's helping us fit our story in with his story into what he's up to in the world. And we need one another for that. We need one another to, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Henry Nouwen says this. Alex Henry Nouwen says this. The next slide, please. Oh, you're there. Thank you, Alex. It looked to me like Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, therefore, since we are surrounded... Uh, no, it is Hebrews chapter 12. Oh, it's... Oh, it's, oh, it's, it's a combined Hebrews chapter 12 and Henry Noun. Wow, the first part of it. Okay, I see it now. Well, if you go down to the fourth line of that slide, you get Henry Noun, and, and Henry Noun says this. Uh, it's, it's, so we were both right, Alex, and we were both wrong. It, it's far from easy to keep living where God is. Therefore, God gives you people who can help hold you in that place and call you back to it every time you wander off. I hope one of the things that we've been learning through this COVID period is that we, we need one another uh, to hold us in that place, especially when our lives are disrupted, especially when we haven't been able to gather together as we normally have. We need to hold on to one another and hold one another before God to help one another fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Um, one of the things I've really appreciated during the last year or so is the leadership of our church. And I'm particularly thinking this morning of Beth and Daniel, wherever you are. There's Daniel. None of us got a playbook for COVID, but the local church certainly didn't. And uh, Daniel and Beth and, and other folks here at Grace have been uh, working their buns off. And both Daniel and Beth kind of have small buns to begin with, but, um, but they've been working their buns off uh, to, to lead us well. And, and thank you, Beth. Thank you, Daniel, for for all you've done. And, and part of that wisdom are these four practices that Daniel's been introducing to us. And also this decision to encourage us to meet in groups, small groups, and to use these practices, these four practices of welcoming God and one another, listening, attending to God and to one another, following Jesus learning from Jesus how to become like him, and then moving out in his love to those in need around us. Those four practices that we've been talking about and will continue to talk about over the next few weeks are not just good practices to think about our small groups, but they're, they're a good framework for the entirety of our lives. Welcome, listen, learn together, and move out. Uh, I have a pastor friend uh, up in the Portland area, and I asked him recently over text, I said, what, 
as you reemerged from COVID, what has your church learned? And, and he said this, uh, and this doesn't have Hebrews at the start, so this is good. Uh, he said this, he said, one thing that was exposed in, in the church he's a part of, that he leads during COVID was how unprepared we were to handle church faith outside of the normal in-person Sunday experience. Initially, there was some good innovation to try to give people tools to engage God at home. This very quickly morphed into just move our Sunday experience online, making people just as dependent on the church to provide their Sunday spirituality. Our church is taking, uh, talking about the new normal, but it looks a lot like it did before, perhaps with some live streaming added on. I'd like to prepare our people in such a way that if a pandemic hit again, they would be able to gather a couple families in their home and do church rather than be dependent on our church's entertainment package. This means equipping people for everyday discipleship. And I thought about, <laughs> yeah, I thought about Beth and Daniel because I, I, I really think these four practices and I think this, this reinvestment in smaller groups of Christians gathering together is exactly what this pastor has been learning. Uh, C.S. Lewis at one point says that the, the weight of my neighbor's glory has been laid on my back and the weight of my glory has been laid on my neighbor's back. That, that the weight of our sanctification has been laid on one another's backs. We're responsible for one another. Whether we're meeting in this place or online or if we can't meet at all. So for the next few weeks, we're talking about these four practices, and I'm going to be talking today about the welcome of God and the welcome of one another. So if you have your Bibles, which again, for those of you here with us this morning, uh, please take it out, because I want to look together at the context of Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Uh, in your Bibles here, it's page 874. And I've titled um, the sermon today, Five Stages of Wandering from the Compassionate Welcome and Loving Embrace of the Father. Five Stages of Wandering from the Compassionate Welcome and Loving Embrace of the Father. First, I, wanna, I want us to notice the context of Luke 15. It's right there in verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. He was attracting those in need. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, grumbled, as they often did, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. We often see in the gospel these two groups, uh, the tax collectors and sinners. These are the, the lapsed Jews. They're the unfaithful, unclean, despised Jews. They're sinners. They're tax collectors. Um, they think they have been excluded from the family of God. And it's amazing how Jesus goes after them and how welcomed they, they, they uh, experience Jesus. But there's this other group, the, the ones who were doing everything right, the, the Pharisees, the, the scribes. And Jesus is actually calling them both to repentance. 
He's calling both groups to realize that they need him. The, the, the tax collectors and sinners think they're too bad to be loved. They think they've been excluded from the Father's love. But the Pharisees and scribes, they actually think they're too good to need love. They, they don't really feel like they need God. They feel like they've somehow earned God, that they deserve the Father's blessing. Jesus is trying to thread this needle, and as we see in the story of the prodigal son, he has both groups in mind. He's trying to call both of these groups to turn, to realize they're wandering from the Father. So, so look with me, jump down. He tells these two stories uh, of, of really parables of, of God. The first one's a parable of the lost sheep about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep, but he loses one and he leaves the 99 to go after the one that's been lost. And then he tells another story about a woman who has 10 silver coins and she loses one and she turns over her whole house until she finds that one coin. And then he tells this story about a man, if you jump down to verse 11, a man who had two sons. And we might think that just as there was 99 sheep that were found, or that were okay, and one that was lost, and, and 10 coins, nine of which were okay, but one was lost, that we have two sons, and, and one's going to be lost. But this story takes a little bit of a twist. It turns out that both sons are lost. Look with me at verse 11. I want to talk about these five stages of wandering. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Let's pause there for a moment. This is the first stage of wandering from the father. As we know, that the younger son to request his inheritance before the father had died was an insult to the father. It was actually an insult to his older brother, too, who actually uh, had the right to the inheritance. So he's, he's basically saying to his father, Dad, I'm done. I don't want to live here anymore. I, I don't like being in the father's house. I want life on my terms. I think I can do better than you, Dad. This is the first stage of wandering. It's, it's a push-off from the Father. It's, it's saying to God that somehow we think we know better than Him how to live life. Perhaps it's with our finances or our career or our friends or our kids or how we use our free time. We think somehow, God, I, I, let me have this. Let me control this. I, I don't really want to trust your fathering Perhaps we're tired of God. His ways just haven't worked for us. Or perhaps we feel God has let us down. He's been a disappointment. He hasn't come through. He hasn't taken care of us or those we love the way we want him to. So we, we take our inheritance, we take the life he's given us, and we decide we're going to try things on our own for a while. We, we set off to live our life as a whole or in part, apart from him. Much like Adam and Eve, we, we decide that we know better, that it would be easier to be God than to trust God. Where are those places in your life where you are prone to wander? 
where you and I are pushing off from God, where it feels easier to trust in ourselves, in our own resources, rather than trust with God. Perhaps where we feel disappointed and we want to try to find life apart from Him. It's the first stage of wandering from God. Look at, look at verse 13 with me. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything This is the second stage of wandering. The young son finds himself in a distant country, a far-off place. And at first, things appear to be going well. He's using his inheritance, and he's having a good time. And sometimes when we wander off from God and find ourselves in a distant country, it, it might go pretty well for a while. We might enjoy life. But oftentimes, like what the young son experiences, things don't continue to work out well. And we start to experience emptiness, meaninglessness. Perhaps reality doesn't cooperate. There, a famine arises in the country. And we find ourselves in a dark place, in a place that's lonely, in a place of abandonment, in a place of deep dissatisfaction unfulfillment. This is that second stage of wandering from God. And I wonder, where might be the places where you have landed in a distant country? These might be our addictions, our hidden sins, uh, the places of darkness, loneliness that no one knows about, where we feel trapped and distant perhaps drowning under the water. That's the second stage of wandering from God's love. Look at verse 17. Here's a redemptive but. But when he came to himself, some translations say when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He came to his senses. He came to himself. And it's interesting, for the first time in Jesus' story, the son says the word father. In fact, he says it three times as he imagines going back to his father and saying to his father, father, and he identifies himself as son, even though he's no longer worthy. He comes to his senses because even though he doesn't think he's worthy to to take that identity, he remembers his identity, that he's a child of the father, that, that he has a home. So this is the third stage of wandering from God, when we come to our senses, perhaps there's some area of your life or my life where we're coming back to ourselves. We're we're waking up to our need for God. This is called 
metanoete, repentance, a turning, a, an awakening, a realization of, oh yeah, there's another way. I'm lost. Lord, I need you. It's a turning from life apart from God back to God. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted him and said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring of sonship on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf, or I like to think of tri-tip, maybe marinated in, um, I don't know, uh, but bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, you might think this fourth stage of, of wandering from the compassionate welcome and the loving embrace of the father is the long walk home, right? He comes to his senses, and now he has to go back home. But it's interesting how the text reads. Look at, look at verse 20. And when he arose, and he arose and came to his father. It was almost as if as soon as he turned to go, his father was there. In fact, Jesus' story kind of drives that point home because the father, it turns out, is on the lookout for his son, and he sees his son a long way off. And the father starts moving towards the son. The, the, the fourth stage of wandering from the compassionate welcome of the father is not the long walk home. God, like the shepherd who goes out looking for the lost sheep or the woman who, who turns over her house looking for that lost coin, God the Father is out looking for the Son. He is available. He is waiting. He is ready. A contemporary poet of our time, Marcus Mumford, wrote these lines. It seems that all my bridges have been burned but you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive at every start. It's not the long walk home that changes our hearts, but the welcome we receive at every start. He arose, and the Father was there. Paul says it similar, similarly in one of his early sermons. He says that God is not far from any of us. And he goes on to quote a poet of his day who wrote, In him we live and move and have our being. God is right there. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome we receive at every start, every turning. Notice the Father here feels compassion for the son. This word compassion is very important in the Gospels. It's only used 11 times. Eight of the 11 times it's used to qualify Jesus's ministry. The Gospel writers write that Jesus felt compassion for the man who had leprosy. Jesus was moved with compassion 
for the people, and he reached out to heal them. Jesus felt compassion, and he fed them. Eight times the gospel writers tell us that when Jesus moves towards others in need, he moves with compassion. Compassion is this word that, that, that we know from the inside out. We know what it feels like. Compassion is that sense of being moved in one's inwards for the good of another. When we feel compassion, we just want to do something to help. We're moved. And that's how Jesus ministered. The other three times this word is used, it's used by Jesus when he tells stories of his father's love. He tells the story of the good Samaritan who is moved with compassion. He tells the story of the forgiving manager who is filled with compassion for the debtor. And here, Jesus tells the story of the father who feels compassion. He's, he's moved internally for the good of his son, and he runs, and he embraces, and he receives but this welcome embrace is still a stage in wandering back to God. Do you see it here? The son has to struggle to receive his father's welcome. The son in his badness, in his unworthiness, has already disqualified himself from the father. The fourth stage in wandering from the compassionate embrace of the father is to receive that welcome, to struggle to receive God's loving embrace. To the degree that we're unable to take in the Father's compassionate, running, reckless love is the degree to which we are still, in some sense, wandering, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We're not quite home yet. Perhaps we too think we are too bad to be loved. I was meeting with one of my students at uh, Talbot School of Theology this last week. Uh, she's a graduate student in her late 40s, and she was making a presentation of a, a, a term paper to myself and another professor, and in that paper and in our conversation, she let us know that she had had two abortions when she was a teenager. And she was in her late 40s, and she was letting us know that she was still struggling with regret and remorse. And she was still struggling to receive the welcome, the forgiveness of her father. And she said, you know, sometimes Christians, and she is a Christian, but she's, sometimes Christians make it sound so easy to accept God's love and forgiveness. She said, I've been struggling to receive forgiveness for over 30 years. See, it is a struggle in our wandering from God to receive his forgiveness, to receive his welcome. Henry Nouwen uh, wrote a book on this um, story called The Return of the Prodigal, where he reflects on Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son, which is going to appear before us. There it is. Now, the actual painting is over eight feet long by eight feet tall in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. So it's a little bigger than this. Um, well, I don't know. I guess that, that's pretty big. Um, 
But Nouwen reflects on Rembrandt painting in the last years of his life the embrace of the young son by the father with the older son looking on. And apparently Rembrandt had, had painted earlier versions of this story earlier in his life that captured the father running to the son. But, but, but Nouwen reflects on why is it that in Rembrandt's old age, he has an aged father who, who appears almost blind. His eyes are, are, are darkened in this painting, standing still, embracing the sun. And, and Nowen says this, here is the God I want to believe in, a father who from the beginning of creation has stretched out his arms in merciful blessing, never forcing himself on anyone but always waiting, never letting his arms drop down in despair, but always hoping that his children will return so that he can speak words of love to them and let his tired arms rest on their shoulders. His only desire is to bless. Where are those places in our lives where we struggle to receive God's blessing, his hands of blessing, his forgiveness, his loving welcome, embrace. That's the fourth stage, but this gets us to the fifth stage. One, one last scene in our text, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and said, what are these things about? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in, his father came to him and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, son, you are always with me, all that I all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is now found. Here comes these beautiful children. Um, see, it turns out that this story isn't about a lost son. It's about two lost sons, isn't it? The older son has been on his own journey while staying at home. He's wandered from his father's love in a different way. He led a dutiful, obedient, hardworking, law-abiding, culturally appropriate life, but he didn't for all of that experience the love of his father. One commentator on this passage writes this, when I listen carefully to the words with which the elder son attacks his father, these self-righteous, self-pitying, jealous words, I hear a deeper complaint. It's the complaint that comes from a heart that feels it never received what it was due. It's the complaint that cries out, I tried so hard, I worked so long, I did so much, and still I have not received what others get so easily. Why do people not thank me, not invite me, not play with me, not honor me, while they pay so much attention to those who take life so easily and so casually? This is the older son who is also lost in his resentment, in his sense of deserving the father's love. But notice the father comes out to him too, verse 28. The father came out 
and retreated him, entreated him. The father saw him from a long way off too. And the first word out of the father's mouth is his identity. Beloved child, son. But it looks like the older son isn't able to come to his senses. He's not able to claim that identity as the beloved child of God. The younger son struggles to receive the father's love due to his sense of unworthiness, while the older son struggles to receive the father's love due to his sense of worthiness. He thinks he's too good to really need the father's love. It's painful to see others receive good things when we feel like we haven't gotten what was due us. That's the fifth stage of wandering from the compassionate welcome and loving embrace of the Father. And I think that what Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who's not only authoring our lives, but is authoring this story, I think what he's trying to do is help locate us in this story. Where are we wandering? Are you pushing off from God, thinking that somehow we know better than him how to live life? Are there places in your life where you find yourself in a distant, far-off country, hunkered down apart from God, living life on your terms? Are there places where you're coming to your senses, where we're waking up and we're realizing, God, I need you? And are you struggling to receive the welcome, the embrace of the Father? Or perhaps you've been good You've done things right, and you too are struggling to receive. I want to end with three applications, actually three applications, and if I can fit it in a quick video. Um, three applications. Here's, they're really questions. How deep does the truth of God's welcome sink into your life? That truth that God welcomes us no matter where we're wandering, how how much does that actually sink in? Does it sink into your bones? Paul says in Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And that suggests that the word of Christ can linger on the surface. So here's a question. How much does this truth that you are welcomed by the compassionate love and forgiveness of God. How much does that really sink in? And I'd like to challenge you to tell someone about that today. Does it sink in 5%, Do you find it hard to believe at all? Because there's a story in that. In your struggle to receive God's welcome, there's a story in that. It's your story. It's your story of being missed, of being unseen, of being unworthy or perhaps feeling too worthy? That's the first question. How deep does the truth of God's welcome sink into your life? Second question is, where do you feel welcomed? Where do you feel embraced, no matter how far you've wandered or where you're at? Where do you feel welcome? Because one of the primary ways that we can learn to receive the Father's welcome is by being with those who welcome us. Um, my daughter, Sienna, was, was uh, telling me, um, Dad, now that we're vaccinated, is it going to be different? And I said, what do you mean? Are we going to do more things? And I said, well, well like, what, what do you, you want to do? And she said, I, I want to go 
and she named some family friends. She said, I want to go to so-and-so's house, and I want to sit on their couch, and I want to watch a movie. And I knew she could sit on our couch and watch a movie, but I knew she wanted to go to this other house because she feels welcome there. She feels like she can sit on their couch, and it feels like home to her. Where are those places, where are those couches that you need to sit on, either literally or metaphorically? Where do you feel welcome? The third and final question is this. How can we see one another as wanderers in need of welcome? How can we see one another more as wanderers in need of welcome? I find it so easy to criticize other people's wandering. When they come to their senses, say, well, I told you so. How can we learn to welcome people and see one another as wanderers? Okay, I'm going to end with this. It was game three of the 2003 NBA Western Conference Finals. The Portland Trailblazers were playing the Dallas Mavericks, and a 12-year-old local girl named Natalie Gilbert had won a contest to sing the national anthem on national TV at the start of the game. And like any 12-year-old, no doubt Natalie Gilbert was thinking this may be her big moment to be discovered. She's just a local girl, won a contest. She's going to sing the national anthem. The Trailblazers coach, Maurice Cheeks, and the rest of the players turn as Natalie is introduced. And we're going to watch this video, then I'm going to come back just for a minute. And now to honor America and salute the men and women serving our country with our national anthem, please welcome, as voted by you, the fans, our winner of the Toyota Get the Feeling of a Star promotion, Natalie Gilbert. What so proudly we hailed at the stars like stars. Stars like last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars. Through the perilous fire, all oh, the rain watched were so gallantly streaming, and the rockets rattled and gave proof through the night that our flag was still there.
you know, on the Today Show when Maurice Cheeks, the coach there of the Trailblazers, and Natalie were interviewed, Coach Cheeks said, as soon as I noticed she had forgotten the words, I started walking. As soon as I noticed she had forgotten the words, I started walking. He went on to say, I, I didn't even know if I knew the words to the song, but I wasn't going to leave her up there alone in front of all those people. I'm just as impressed with Maurice Cheeks walking towards someone in need as I am with Natalie Gilbert leaning in to his welcome. So I say to us, how might we lean into the welcome of the Father who is always walking towards us? And how might we extend that welcome to one another?